Okay, let's get started. I'll pray for us. Father, thank you for your love for us. Uh, thank you for your, your goodness to us, that you give us things to enjoy. Thank you that we can study and learn. And as we look at the apologist and what the church was dealing with in the second and third century, I pray that we would be able to learn from them uh, because we face many of the same things in our culture today. Help us to show the world that Christians are not... Uh, as they are often perceived, and I pray that our love would be evident and that the world would know that we are your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. So, recall from last time, if, uh, if you remember, that Christians in the 2nd and the 3rd centuries were facing four accusations or four charges were being brought against them. Number one, they were being charged as atheists because Roman culture worshipped a pantheon of gods and all the gods were involved in everything you do and along comes this group called Christianity and they say we only worship the one true God and his name is Jesus and so the Romans looked at them and said you must be atheists then because you only worship one God when there are many now we saw last time that they put up with the Jews who are monotheists and only worship Yahweh because the Jews had been around for a long time. Judaism had been around and Romans valued antiquity. And so they put up with Jews, but when Christians come along, they're, they call them atheists. They're also, another accusation is that they are anti-social. So these Christians will gather in their little private homes and have these church services and they don't come and they're not a part of society. They don't come to the Colosseum when they're throwing people to lions to be eaten. They don't come and participate in that. They're not involved in the feast. They're not involved in anything at all. They just kind of stay in the holy little huddle. And so they said that Christians are antisocial. The third charge brought against Christians in the second century was that they were cannibalistic. They always talk about eating the body of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They always talk about drinking His blood. They always say when they celebrate the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, uh, the body, His body broken for you, take and eat. His blood spilled for you, take and drink. And so Romans, not understanding what Christians meant by this, said they're cannibalistic. They're always getting together in these private meetings and or they're antisocial and they're eating their one God. The fourth charge that is brought against Christians in the second and third centuries is that they are incestuous. They have these incestuous relationships with one another where husband and wife refer to one another as their brother or sister in Christ. And so they said, you're married to your sister and we don't do that. And so those are the four main charges that we looked at last time that are being uh, leveled against the church and the apologists that we're looking at now are this group of men who rise up and they want to write letters to leaders and politicians, people in places of power, and they want to kind of clear the air and clear up this misunderstanding and say these four things that you are hearing about Christians are not true. They're also being accused of being irrational. You'll see that some. Um, as we've stressed through this class, Christians are a people of faith. Uh, and the Romans could not 
grasp this about Christians. The fact that Christians just simply believed and had faith irritated the culture. And Christians simply uh, receive their teachings by faith. They don't receive it through rational examination of the evidence or critical thinking. In fact, Origen, one of the apologists that we're going to be looking at uh, in a couple weeks. By the way, there's no class next week because we have our chili cook-off. So no class next week. So coming back after that, um, and I'll try to send an email out this week. When we get back, at some point we're going to look at Origen. Uh, he recorded what one Roman man named Celsus said about Christians. Celsus said, Christians do not ask questions, they only believe. And so that was kind of the understanding, is that Christians just fall for everything hook, line, and sinker. And so the fact that we are a people of faith bothered many unbelievers in the 2nd and 3rd centuries because they valued critical thinking. Now, it's not that Christians don't ask questions. It's not that Christians uh, don't examine evidence. It's not that Christians don't think critically because we do those things. It's just that we do that after belief. Remember what we saw last time. Augustine said, therefore, do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe that thou mayest understand. So we don't understand so that we believe the truth that's revealed in God's word. We believe the truth that's revealed in God's word. And then we try to understand what that means. So the apologists of the second century took it upon themselves to defend the church against all of these accusations and against all of these lies. And before we look at some of the writings of the apologists, it's important to understand when they're writing these letters, they're not responding because they felt like their rights were taken away. The apologists weren't American. So we have to be careful that we don't read them as if they were Americans and then jump to the conclusion that somehow they were standing up for their First Amendment rights. The apologists simply want to clear the air about these misunderstandings and charges, but they are fully aware that how they're being treated is normal for Christians. Hostility and suffering and persecution, they believed that that was the norm. That was a part of discipleship. It's a part of following Jesus. If they hated Jesus, then they're going to hate us too. So the apologists didn't see these accusations and charges brought against them as strange or odd. They realized they were most likely motivated by a hatred of Christ, by a world that doesn't know Jesus. They didn't think it was weird because they just said, this is what the world does. They hated Jesus, they're going to hate us. They don't get us. That's just normal Christianity for the apologists in the second and third centuries. They hated Jesus, and so the apologists knew that the world is going to hate us too. In fact, they saw it as a blessing. They took serious Jesus' words in Matthew 5 where he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, think about that. Jesus is saying rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted. What do Western evangelical Christians in America say when they're persecuted? Oh, see you in the world. I want Jesus to come back. And I want Jesus to come back. I do. But my knee-jerk reaction is not to say, oh, I should rejoice and be glad because my reward is great in heaven. My knee-jerk reaction is to say, oh, what about my First Amendment rights? Right? 
So all of the lies and all of the accusations and charges that are brought against the church and against Christians in the second and third century, century was just what Jesus said would happen. All of these charges that caused them to be marginalized socially and thrown in jail and persecuted and tortured and thrown to the lions and martyred, it was just consistent with what Jesus said that they should expect. And so the apologists knew and I think it's something we need to recover as Western evangelical American Christians. The apologists knew that suffering did not hinder the gospel. They knew that the exact opposite actually happens. As Christians were persecuted, as Christians were martyred, as Christians were thrown to the lions in the Colosseums to be eaten alive, the church actually grew. As one of the apologists himself said, and you've probably heard this quote from Tertullian, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So the apologists understood that killing Christians and persecuting Christians only serves to make the church grow. So they didn't fear persecution. They didn't fear martyrdom. Guess what they feared? We talked about this several weeks ago. They feared false teaching. As Sinclair Ferguson said, the early church did not fear martyrdom nearly as much as it feared false teaching. They didn't want false ideas about God spreading. That's what they feared. And that's why they were so detailed in teaching Christian doctrine and theology to new converts before they got baptized and before they ate the Lord's Supper because they valued theology. They feared false teaching more than martyrdom. But they also knew that martyrdom was a reality for Christians living in the Roman Empire. And so for the early church, martyrdom was discipleship. And that's true of many Christians around the world today. You know, Christians who suffer persecution, are we think we suffer persecution, don't we? Yeah, we don't. There are Christians around the world who suffer persecution, and when they read the book of Revelation, they say, this is happening right now. They read that and say, this is happening. It's not something happening in the future to them. They're saying, this is a reality now. So for them, in the early church, and many Christians today, martyrdom was Discipleship To follow Jesus meant that you would suffer and you might end up being a martyr. That was Christianity 101 in the second century. And so there's a fame, an anonymous apology from this time. These letters, these reasoned arguments that the apologists wrote. There's an anonymous apology from this time written by one of the apologists. We're not sure who. It's called the, the letter of Diognetus. The letter of, if you want me to write it down, the letter of Diognetus, written around this time. And it says, Christians, when punished day by day, increase more and more. And so it was true in the second century, and it's still true today. And so that means when we are persecuted and when we suffer for our beliefs, it will not hinder the growth of God's church. In fact, God will use it to cause the gospel to spread and to cause his church to grow. On your handouts, you have the major apologists of the era. We're going to look at a few of them tonight and more in two weeks. There's around, I think, 11 or 12 apologists. These are kind of the main apologists. 
there were other apologists uh, like uh, Hippolytus and Tatian and Athenagoras and Theophilus, but the six that I have listed there are generally known as the major apologists. We have Justin Martyr, we have Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyprian of Carthage, uh, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen. And the apologists wrote what were called apologies, or what were these reasoned arguments. And the, the earliest apology that we have is this one, the letter to Diognetus. The author is unknown, but in it, whoever wrote it, uh, the argument is that Christians are being unjustly persecuted. And they are good citizens, is what uh, Diognetus, or whoever wrote this is. Uh, they're good citizens, they obey the law, and they love people. There's another apologist whose name is uh, Quadratus. If you're looking for a good name for your kids or grandkids, there's one. <laughs> Quadratus Magnus kind of has a ring to it, but I think we're done. <laughs> Six is enough for us. Maybe I'll save it for a new dog or something. Uh, Quadratus, and some, actually some church historians believe that he is the oldest of the apologists, and some believe that he actually wrote the letter to Diognetus. None of his works have survived unless he authored uh, to Diognetus. But we know about this man named Quadratus because Eusebius, who was, from, was born in 264 and died in 340, Eusebius mentions him in his work called Ecclesiastical. Ecclesiastical history. So we know there's this guy named Quadratus who was one of the apologists because Eusebius later on in about 100 years is going to mention him. Shortly after this, there's an apologist uh, by the name of Aristides of Rome. Uh, of Athens, I mean. And he wrote an apology. And there are some church historians who believe that what he wrote is the earliest apology or reasoned argument that we have. I mean, who knows? Again, we're dealing with church history like the dates. These things are movable and everybody's weighing in. But in this letter, uh, Aristides argues that the purity of the life of Christians actually proves the truth of Christianity. He argues that if the Romans would look closely at the lives of Christians, how they cared for one another, how they served their community, how they lived pure lives, how they didn't cuss and cheat and steal, or however that joke goes, and go with girls who do. I can't remember how it goes. Uh, if the Romans would look at the lives of Christians, then they should be able to make a reasoned decision that these Christians are not troublemakers, but in fact, they're the real deal. They're model citizens. Okay, questions or comments before we move on to the first apologist, Justin Martyr. Okay, Justin Martyr is probably the most well-known of the apologists. Perhaps you've heard his name. Uh, he lived from 180 to 165. He was born to pagan parents, and after much searching for the truth through various philosophical systems, he met an old man on the beach one day, and that man shared the gospel with him and convinced Justin of the superiority of the Old Testament prophets. And Justin recounts this, his conversion in one of his writings called Dialogue with uh, Trypho. He said this, When he, the old man, had spoken these things and many other things, which there is no time for mentioning at present, he went away bidding me attend to them. And I have not seen him since. 
But straight away a flame was kindled in my soul, and a love of the prophets and of those men who are friends of Christ possessed me. And whilst resolving his words in my mind, I found this philosophy alone to be safe and profitable. Thus, and for this reason, I am a philosopher. Moreover, I would wish that all, making a resolution similar to my own, do not keep themselves away from the words of the Savior. For they possess a terrible power in themselves and are sufficient to inspire those who turn aside from the path of rectitude with awe, while the sweetest rest is afforded those who make a diligent practice of them. If then you have any concern for yourself and if you are eagerly looking for salvation and if you believe in God, you may, since you are not indifferent to the matter, become acquainted with the Christ of God and after being initiated, live a happy life. We wouldn't use the language that Justin is, but Justin is writing to Trifo and saying you should look into Christianity. You should repent and believe the gospel. Justin wrote a handful of apologies in in what is called his first apology. Justin describes the lives of Christians in his day. He says, we who formerly delighted in fornication, but now embrace chastity alone. We who formerly used magical arts, dedicate ourselves to the good and unbegotten God. We who have valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have into a common stock and communicate to everyone in need. We who hated and destroyed one another and on account of their different manners would not live with men of a different tribe now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies and endeavor to persuade those who hate us unjustly to live comfortably or conformably to the good precepts of Christ, to the end that they may become partakers with us of the same joyful hope of a reward from God, the ruler of all. So Justin is saying, just look at our lives. We're different. In fact, I love what he says is, we actually hang out with people who are not like us and who we do not like. Like God begins to to knit our hearts together. You look around in the world and everybody's segregated in their little pockets and their little cultures. He said, if you look at Christians, you get together and we're all different. There are Cowboys fans and Philadelphia Eagles fans in the same church. And they like each other. Except on game day. So Justin is trying to clear the air. Clear up any misunderstandings about what is being said about Christians in his day. And this first apology was actually written to Roman Emperor Antoninus Pius. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. Who ruled from 86 to 160. One, or no, that was his dates uh, when he was alive. So imagine emailing what he just said to our president. Hey, we're different. This is what Justin did. He's writing a letter to the emperor and saying, examine us. We are different. So the apologists believe that persecution was the result of uninvestigated charges, unreasonable emotions, and they actually said demonic persecution. So Justin Martyr even points this out in his first apology. He says, what you're doing is actually motivated by demons. He says, why then should this be? In our case, who pledge ourselves to do no wickedness, nor to hold these atheistic opinions, you do not examine the charges made against us, But yielding to unreasoning passion and to the instigation of evil demons, you punish us without consideration or judgment. Justin is saying, you're not even investigating if these claims are true. And when you do that, you show that you're actually being instigated by demons. 
by Satan because he hates the church. The apologist also appealed for justice against slander. To quote Justin Martyr again, he says, But lest anyone think that this is an unreasonable and reckless utterance, we demand that the charges against the Christians be investigated, and that if these be substantiated, they be punished as they deserve. Or rather, indeed, we ourselves will punish them. But if no one can convict us of anything, true reason forbids you, for the sake of a wicked rumor, to wrong blameless. He's saying, if these aren't true, reason would say, you can't punish us for this. But the apologists were not just out to dispel rumors in their day. Justin also writes to Antoninus, or Antoninus, how you say his name, in defense and protection of little children. Justin is writing to the emperor, and he is challenging him to put a stop to pedophilia and sex trafficking and pornography, specifically as it relates to children. Here's what Justin says. But as for us, we have been taught that to expose newly born children is the part of wicked men. And this we have been taught lest we should do anyone an injury and lest we should sin against God. First, because we see that almost all so exposed, not only the girls, but also the males, are brought up to prostitution. And as the ancients are said to have reared herds of oxen or goats or sheep or grazing horses, so now we see you rear children only for this shameful use. And so we see Justin and the apologist early on, the early church is very much concerned about protecting children from sick and twisted people. The the sanctity of human life is a part of the DNA of the early church, and they're writing to their emperors and leaders about this. I love that. Just a martyr was eventually martyred, thus his name. The word martyr actually means to witness, but we need to understand that the second century church had a different understanding of being a witness than we do in the 21st century. We actually have a very narrow understanding of what witnessing is today. We think of witnessing as what? Sharing the gospel. Sharing a tract from evangelism explosion or the four spiritual laws. When second century Christians talked about witnessing... They meant that they testified to their belief in Jesus and they were persecuted and suffered and maybe even gave their life for their faith. Remember, martyrdom was discipleship. Remember, his name is Justin Martyr, not Justin Tract. (laughs) Justin Martyr, not Justin for spiritual laws. When they witnessed, it had to do with their very life. Their life was on the line when they were telling people about their Savior. And so martyrdom was the great evangelical moment. And in that moment, when they gave their life, they just saw themselves as just imitating Jesus. And since Jesus died without giving a defense of himself, so too the martyr in the 2nd and 3rd century was not concerned about self-preservation, not concerned about defending oneself, but instead they were concerned with witnessing to the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, how Christians suffered was important in the 2nd century. How they suffered. I wonder, just, and I'll take a question in a minute, Debbie. I wonder, because I'm a little scrappy, I wonder how I would respond if I was persecuted and they, they rounded me up, like, I'm a fighter. 
Uh, and so I just pray, Jesus, don't let me run my mouth and like, you know, take a swing at somebody because I'm an idiot. Uh, and so I look at them and, and I hear these stories of Christians, you know, the angelic faces. And, 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 I, and I'm praying, Lord, let that be me because, you know, I can just open my mouth and, you know, I'm a scrapper and I'll just get myself in trouble and bring, uh, you know, a, a bad thought upon you. And so in a way, you can pray for me that if persecution ever comes to me, that I would just be like an angel. Anyway. Why was he uh, brought to martyrdom? I mean, was, was it because of the letters he was writing? Yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah, and so eventually uh, he ends up giving his life. Yeah. So anyway, so how Christians suffer, that's, that's my big concern. I know that persecution and suffering is coming. I, I can, I'm worried about myself. Lord, let me suffer in a way that honors you, that, that imitates how you as a lamb before uh, uh, slaughter just was quiet. I, I want to go that way. Uh, you know, I think sometimes as Americans we think I got to stand up for my rights. And so, anyway, Marianne. Do you think the reason we don't have much more in them is because we don't step out where the people are and start speaking to our officials, to the people on the streets, to wherever? I think it's probably because we have a, we have a good government. Uh huh. It's not, I mean, it's, to me, it's the best. It doesn't mean it's not broken and has problems, but I think we have a pretty good system in place. It's not anarchy on the streets. It's not Mad Max Thunderdome. You know, it's, we have laws and, you know, gosh, in California, if I push you like that, you can, you can, I can be arrested for assault just by simply touching your arm. So uh, I think it's because of that now if that goes away at some point, I, don't, um, I think because of all the hot cultural issues right now and what Christians believe, I wouldn't be surprised at some point if it's like, hey, if, if we're going to take some people out and some people are going to be persecuted, then it should be those Christians because they're so narrow-minded mm -hmm. and they're not tolerant of anyone, uh, even though no one's tolerant of what we believe. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I think, um, you know. So so how they suffered was important. Another one of the apologists, a man by the name of Athenogoras. There's another one for you who's not on your list. I think he might be on your list. I'm not sure. I don't think he is. I mentioned him. Uh, he wrote an apology called Plea for Christians where he contrasted the conduct of Christians with those who were honored by Rome. And he says this about Christians. He says, when struck, they do not strike again. When robbed, they do not sue. They give to those that ask of them and love their neighbors as themselves. We, however, cannot refrain from turning the other cheek when we are struck, nor from blessing when we are reviled. For it is not enough to be just, justice consisting in returning blows, but we have to be generous and to put up with evil. And so the apologists knew that the greatest apologetic the church has is its love. Love for God, love for one another, Love for their enemies. I was just listening to a, a story about, I missed the first part of some Christians who are being persecuted and they're put out on this frozen lake and stripped naked and left to just freeze to death. And, they, and to taunt them to give up their faith, they came and brought out these hot baths full of warm water. And one of them finally just gave in and jumped into the warm bath and because of how cold he was it actually killed him on the spot and then one of the soldiers who was uh guarding them uh when he saw that act 
he stripped his clothes off and walked out on the, like the frozen lake and just said, I'm, gonna, I'm a Christian now. So that's how I want to go. I don't want to be the guy that jumps in the hot water. I want to be the guy that takes a swing at the person who's come to arrest me. It's like, Jesus, I want to turn the other cheek like you do. Um, please help me be generous and put up with evil. So I'm praying for that. Uh, the apologist knew that the greatest apologetic the church has is love. Uh, Jeff Bingham, my church history professor, says the Christian ethic is always the first line of defense, whether in the second century or the 21st. What did Jesus say? You will know, people will know you are my disciples by your what? Love. By your love. And so how you suffered was just as important to the apologist, not just standing up for truth, but how you actually suffered. And so both Justin Martyr and Athena Gorse also informed the emperors to which they wrote that Christians were good citizens. So to be a Christian meant that you were a good citizen who followed the laws and didn't stir up trouble. And so by writing uh, to these leaders in Rome, the, the apologists were simply asking for tolerance for Christians. And that's really what we're asking for, too, is just tolerance. I mean, if we're going to be tolerant of everybody, you should be tolerant of You're crying out for tolerance. So are we. They're just simply seeking tolerance. And they did that by insisting that Christians were kind people who sought the good of the city and sought the good of the nation. And so it's through their writings to those in high positions that the apologists helped to cool some of the heat that Christians were experiencing. Rumors were spreading that Christians were antisocial and atheist and cannibalistic and incestuous. And so by writing these letters, these apologies to these leaders, the apologists are helping to educate those in authority so that they could use their positions of power to help clear up any of the misunderstandings. And the apologists actually exploited the philosophy of the day by communicating to the Romans the reasonableness of Christianity. They were using that, what Romans valued, and saying, this is reasonable if you think about it. They were saying, we may be different, but we're tolerable. We're not bad people. We're not bad citizens. We're not bad Romans. Don't believe what you hear about us. If you want to see what we're like, come and join us and watch. So we'll come back in a few weeks and look at... uh, Irenaeus, one of the other major apologists, and we'll see how he in particular attacked the heresy of Gnosticism. But before we do that, we look at him, we're going to look at a few other apologists. But before we get to Tertullian, questions or comments? All right, Tertullian uh, is a well-known of the apologists. He was brought up in a pagan household in Carthage. He was educated in literature and rhetoric and became a Christian sometime in his 30s. Later on in his life, Tertullian is going to be involved with a group that was started by a guy named uh, Montanus, Montanism, which is kind of like an early charismatic movement where they're open to new prophecies and things. But he's a, he's a key leader and defender of the faith. Later on in his life, he kind of gets involved with some weird stuff. But like we saw in the sermon this morning, sometimes even at the end of your life, you can kind of go down the wrong path. And so we always have to be guarding our heart. Tertullian spoke out about the injustices that Christians face, especially when they are automatically assumed of being guilty of whatever charge was brought against them. Which kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? Any kind of sentencing to jail without an investigation, Tertullian said, that is not justice. And so we have about 31 of Tertullian's writings that have survived. And perhaps his most influential works is called Against Marcion. 
And it was written against, well, you guessed it, a guy by the name of Marcion. Irenaeus, who we're going to look at more next time, also wrote against Marcion in his letters called Against Heresies. But we're going to talk about Marcion tonight and his heresy, which Tertullian and Irenaeus spilled a lot of ink on. And they did that in order to protect the church from the nonsense that Marcion was spreading. It came to be known as Marcionism. Here's what Marcion believed. Marcion believed that there were two gods. There was the wrathful, judgmental, really angry, upset at everybody, God of the Old Testament. And then you had the good and gracious and kind and merciful one, the God of the New Testament. Two different gods. Marcion thought that the Jews and their scriptures... The Old Testament had zero value because those writings were associated with the angry God. And so Marcion's Bible only had a chopped up version of Luke's gospel and the ten letters of Paul. Marcion hated all the laws of the Old Testament. He hated the Old Testament. Now, Marcion was asking a good question. His question was, what is the relationship of the Old Testament and what is the relationship of the Old Testament law to Christianity? So Marcion's question wasn't wrong. What was wrong is his answer to his own question. Marcion's answer is that there's no relationship whatsoever between the Old Testament and the Old Testament law and Christianity. So who was Marcion and where did he come from? How did he get so popular? He was born in uh, 85 AD, 85 AD, died in 160 AD. He was actually the son of a bishop in Rome. He's the son of a pastor in Rome. What we know of Marcion is that he was a wealthy ship owner. And around AD 140, he arrived back in Rome where he was welcomed by the church. He soon donated a lot of money and helped build a new building. But by AD 144, less than four years later, Marcion's wacky views got him into trouble and he was excommunicated from the church. Marcion was influenced by Gnosticism, which we're going to look at more next time we meet. In two weeks, because there's no week, no class next week, right? He was influenced by uh, Gnosticism, which uh, proposes a dualistic understanding of life. Gnosticism teaches that the physical world is bad, our bodies are bad, and only the spiritual realm is good. Your body is bad, it's only your spirit. That's the most important part. And we're going to look at more next time we meet. But Marcion, he didn't go all in on Gnosticism, but he was heavily influenced by it. And so Marcion actually applied this dualism, this good, uh, ba- this good and this bad, uh, to the Bible. And so according to Marcion, the God of the Old Testament was, with, was this wrathful, angry God who's always out for vengeance. He's always in a bad mood. You're walking on pins and needles around him. This God in the Old Testament only wanted to keep humanity in subjection to him. He wanted, he wanted to keep his boot on everyone's throat. While Jesus, on the other hand, was sent by the real God to bring the message of love. And so Marcion would have loved the hippies in the 70s, right? Peace, man. Just put some beads on and some flowers and just talk about Jesus and love. Marcion, though, was not just a big fish in a small pond. He was actually very influential. 
The amount of books and letters that were written about him proved that he was very popular and that his message was taking off in churches of the second century. And so Marcion ends up getting condemned by Polycarp, by Justin Martyr, by Irenaeus, by Clement, by Tertullian, by Hippolytus, by Origen, and by a slew of others. Irenaeus, who we're going to look at next time, recalls this. I love this. I love the apologists. Man, I thought I loved the apostolic fathers, and I do, but I love the apologists because... Listen to this. Irenaeus, who we're going to look at next time, recalls a meeting between Polycarp, if you remember him, who was Bishop of Smyrna. He recalls this meeting between Polycarp and Marcion. And in this encounter, Marcion came up to Polycarp and says, Do you remember me? And this is how Polycarp replied. I do know you, the firstborn of Satan. Marcion's most well-known book is called Antithesis, in which he pitted the New Testament against the Old Testament. Marcion saw too many discrepancies between the Old and New Testaments, and so he came to the conclusion that there were two gods. There was Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and there's Jesus, the God of the New Testament. They were both bitter enemies. And by coming to Israel, when he did, Jesus was actually challenging the rule of Yahweh. And so Marcion read passages like Isaiah 45, verse 7 in the Old Testament. And he concluded that Yahweh is the one who has has caused all the evil and darkness in this world. That verse says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And so Marcion read that verse and he would say, see, Yahweh is the bad guy. He's the one responsible for all the calamity in this world. He says so himself right there. He's taking responsibility. And so Marcion called the angry Old Testament God Yahweh, and he called the nice, loving New Testament God Abba, or Father. Marcion hated everything about the Old Testament. All he wanted to do was talk about God's love. He wanted to, to rid the church of captivity to God's law. And the only way that he saw fit to do that was to get rid of the entire Old Testament. And so this is what Tertullian said about him. He said, Marcion's special and principal work is the separation of the law and the gospel. Marcion thought that the Mosaic law and the gospel could not play well together and therefore they had no business being together. Now, we would say that the law condemns us and shows us our need of a Savior. And after we run to the gospel, the gospel sends us back to obey the law, not to gain God's favor, but to show our love for him and to show our love for the neighbor. Marcion would disagree with that. Marcion would not agree with what is called the third use of the law, if you read about that. Let's talk about the three uses of the law. Scripture shows us that God intends His law to function three ways. John Calvin kind of crystallized this uh, for the church's benefit by referring to the law's threefold use. And so the first function of God's law is to be a mirror reflecting to us both the perfect righteousness of God and then our sinfulness and our shortcomings. Augustine said, The law bids us, as we try to fulfill its requirements, and we become wearied in our weakness under it, 
so that we know how to ask the help of grace. And so the law is meant to give knowledge of sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, Romans 7. The law is meant to give knowledge of sin. And by showing us also that we need pardon, we need forgiveness because we're all lawbreakers. And to show us our danger of damnation, eternal damnation, so that we're led in repentance and faith to Christ. So that's the first use. Show us God's righteousness, His holiness. Show us that we're sinners and we, we don't have His righteousness and we desperately need it. The, section, the second function of the law is called the civil use of the law, which is given to restrain evil. And so even though the law can't change the heart, it can to some extent inhibit lawlessness by its threats of judgment. So you see this in the Old Testament when God said, don't do this or this is going to happen. That is the second use, hoping that people would say, yeah, if I do that, then that's going to happen. And therefore, I don't want to do that. And so we see that with a lot of the civil code uh, that administers punishment for these offenses in the Old Testament. So it secures civil order. One of the reasons God gave the law is so that it wouldn't be Mad Max and Thunderdome in the Old Testament. One of the reasons they came into the law is so that they would have law and structure. So it wasn't everybody doing whatever they wanted to do. There was law and structure and order. And God knew that we needed that. It also serves to protect the righteous from the unjust. The third function of the law is to, reguide, is to guide us, the regenerate, those children of God who are in union with Christ, to guide us into the good works that God has planned for us. The law tells God's children how we can please our Heavenly Father. It, it's like a family code. Christ was speaking of the third use of the law when he said that those who become his disciples must be taught to do all that he commanded. And that obedience to his commands will prove the reality of one's love for him. And so the Christian is free from the law as a system of salvation because we can't obey the law perfectly in order to be saved, right? But we're still under the law of Christ as a rule of life. God's law tells us how we can please our Father. Okay, any questions or comments on this or anything so far? Marcion saw no use for God's law at all, the first, second, or third use at all. He believed that the God who gave the law could not also be the God who gave us the gospel. And so, what did Marcion do? He actually created his own Bible. I don't have a copy of it here, I'm getting cough drop. <laughs> You thought I was pulling out a copy of Marcion's Bible, didn't you? I can tell you how to make your own in a moment. Okay? Marcion created his own Bible. He picked whatever books he could find in the Bible that sounded the most gospel-y, and that became his Bible. Whichever books best showed the contrast between the law and gospel, that made the cut. And so he picked Luke's gospel and the ten letters of Paul. He actually idolized Paul. He called Paul the great enemy of the law. And he didn't just take Luke's gospel as it was. He cut out everything in Luke's gospel that made Jesus sound Jewish. And then whatever leftovers there were, that became Luke 2.0. So I don't have a copy of Marcion's Bible, but you can make your own. Rip it all out and only keep the parts of Luke that don't sound anything like the Old Testament or what's Jewish in Paul's ten letters. And you've got a copy of Marcion's New Testament. To all of this butchery, Tertullian said this. Marcion used the knife, not the pen, 
massacring scripture to suit his own material. And so he came up with his own Bible. Can I see a hand? Dean? Is anyone else suffering from incredulity? How could an intelligent person who's sincere be so wrong to dismiss so much of what's in Scripture, both Old and New Testament? Yeah, we'll see it next time we meet, too, is that you can just make the Bible sing any song you want to. It's why you have false teachers who just have thousands that gather. Um, people are deceived. People don't know their Bibles well. Even though they didn't have the new t- most of the New Testament back then, they had parts and it was beginning to circulate and be copied more. They had the Old Testament. They had access to it in places. And they could have gone. And they had pastors and bishops and elders over them. And people just fall for things. It's part of Satan's work in this world. And so he fell for this own understanding because he's, he's doing, Marcion's doing theology on his own. He's not doing theology in community. And we're always called to do theology in community, not just on our own. Now, he may have gathered a few people around him at first who fed what he wanted to hear, but he wasn't doing theology with the whole church, with church history up to that point. And so what we're going to see as we get into the creeds is that the creeds are given uh, to kind of give us parameters. We have the Bible and the creeds kind of give us this fence and say, you can't go beyond this. The creeds are making clear what God's word says and you can't go beyond there. And so whenever we look at God's word, we have to read it locally in our community and then read it in the community of faith with church history. And so what Marcion should have done was humble himself and went to his uh, leaders and said, this is what I'm seeing. What, what's... Help me answer the question, what uh, is the relationship between the Christian and the Old Testament? What's the relationship with the Christian and God's law? And he should have humbled himself and listened to his pastors. But instead, he probably had a Sunday school class and he started teaching. And they're like, ooh, that's really good. Yeah, I don't understand all those laws anyway. So let's just get rid of Leviticus. I mean, who wants to read that? I always get stuck when I get to Leviticus in my Bible reading. I can never complete it in one year because of Leviticus. So let's just get rid of it, Marcy, and you're right. Let's just talk about Jesus and what Paul said. And so that's how it happened. Just not reading scripture together in the local church community and in the community of faith as we see throughout church history. And so because Marcion was influenced by the dualism of Gnosticism that we're going to look at next time, he even couldn't, because remember Gnosticism is that all the world is bad. Everything physical is bad. He couldn't handle Jesus being born from a woman, from a human being. And so he simply said that Jesus floated down from the sky and made his first appearance at the wedding at Cana. And so this kind of nonsense was actually spreading and getting very popular because the apologists are spilling. They're publishing book after book against this guy because it's spreading. To answer your question, D, why, how? Because people didn't know their Bibles. Even though they didn't have all of the New Testament, they had it. I mean, not everybody had a copy like we do now, uh, but it's being collected, and, and churches and pastors have the Old Testament and probably a lot of the New Testament at this point. But they don't know their Bibles, and they're falling. And it's why people fall for false teachers today, because they don't know their Bibles. And because if you get a dynamic speaker, 
Sometimes it doesn't matter what they're saying, does it? All that matters for some people is how good of a speaker he is and how what that speaker is saying is making me feel. And for some people, that's all they need. Don't bore me because i got to sit there for 45 minutes. So if you're a great communicator and you make me feel good, I'll believe anything that you say. And especially when they don't open up their Bibles, half of them, or they do, they lift a verse out of context and then set the Bible down and they start talking. And so that's just how we are. So in, in response to all of this nonsense of Marcion, Tertullian and Irenaeus launched an attack on him. And in 2007, 2008 AD, Tertullian is going to publish his most popular work simply and appropriately titled Against Marcion. So I, I picture him going to the publisher. He's like, what do you want to call your book? Uh, what's it about? Against Marcion? That's a great title. Let's go with that. And it was five volumes. Five. five volumes. This is how popular Marcion was. One by one, argument for argument, Tertullian is going to dismantle Marcion's views. And perhaps Tertullian's best argument was this. He challenged Marcion to produce one Marcionite church that could trace its roots to an apostle, to one of the 12 apostles. Remember, the apostles picked the bishops to succeed them. So there's this line of apostolic authority that's very important in the early church. You want to know that guy was discipled by that guy who was discipled by Peter. And so Tertullian is pressing Marcion to find one church whose bishop and pastor can claim that they were discipled by one of the 12 apostles. And obviously Marcion couldn't do it. Tertullian let Marcion know that the church was his ground. Like, you're standing on my ground. And it did not belong to heretics who butcher God's word and absolutely misrepresent him. And so Tertullian said this to Marcion. Who are you? When and whence did you come? What are you doing on my land? By what right are you cutting down my timber, Marcion? This property belongs to me. I am heir to the apostles. So Tertullian is saying, you don't belong here. And because Marcion held to dualism, and because he saw matter in the entire physical world, all of God's creation as evil, even though he himself was a human being, he saw the entire physical world, God's creation as evil. Tertullian called him out on that too. And Tertullian said, Marcion has ridiculed the insects, but he cannot imitate the skills of the bee, ant, spider, silkworm, or any other of God's tiny creatures. And so I believe today, after, after saying that, Tertullian would say, boom, roasted. Like I just roasted you. Mic drop here. I mean, Tertullian is saying, Marcion, you want to knock the spider or the silkworm? Let me see you get as red face as you can and see if you can make silk come out in a web and make a web yourself. Go ahead and try. Make a web. You can't. 
And so Marcion was excommunicated from the church in A.D. 144. And because he was rich, he still had a following for a while, even for a few years after his death. But the church stood its ground, and with the help of the apologists like Tertullian and Irenaeus, truth prevailed, and distinctive Christian belief and doctrine and theology was preserved from the threat of Marcionism. Now... We still see the ghost of Marcionism in churches today, don't we? Churches who only want to preach on God's love. Churches who never discuss God's anger at sinful mankind. Or the fact that God disciplines his children. So we see that today where some churches, even some really conservative Bible-believing, Christ-honoring churches are afraid to say that, hey... You're a sinner and you sit under God's wrath and unless you repent, you will spend eternity in hell forever. There are solid Christian churches that are afraid to say that because of what culture thinks. And so we still see the ghost of Marcion coming around very subtly and things like that. We see the ghost of Marcion in churches where the Old Testament is virtually ignored. Except for the Psalms and Proverbs, right? We love those. But churches that ignore the Old Testament, churches where they're not regularly preaching on Sunday morning from the Old Testament, are just listening to the ghost of Marcion. So you can still find the ghost of Marcion if you look closely. Next time we're going to look at a man named Irenaeus and the heresy of Gnosticism, part of what was influencing uh, Marcion to chop up his Bible And then maybe we'll have time to look at a few other of the apologists. Any questions or comments at this time? Great. All right. I'll pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you are a God of love. And you're a God of anger, Lord. And for all of us gathered in this room, Lord, I know that your anger was... uh, dealt with at the cross your anger at our sin when you poured your wrath out upon your son in our place in substitutionary atonement and we are eternally grateful for that thank you for loving us thank you for your law which exposes us thank you for the gospel which relieves us and reminds us that there's no condemnation lord i pray as a church like we prayed this morning that you would revive us again pray that uh, we would Be uh, intentional as we talk about here at Grace, making disciples, making disciples, that we would teach uh, children and our students and one another. We ground them in, in Christian doctrine, Christian theology, Christian belief, and that you would give us still spines and soft hearts to interact with our culture and with our world. Help us not to be afraid to stand up for truth. I pray that you would use any suffering or persecution that comes our way to advance your kingdom and to cause your church to grow and cause people to come to faith in you. And help me, Lord, if I'm ever uh, persecuted for any reason, Lord, help me to turn the other cheek and to be kind and to love my enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.